Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. Our scripture reading today is once again taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, the verses 20 through 22, and these words also form the text for the sermon. Hear God's holy word. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, last week, you recall, we considered the first part of the letter to the church of Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. And we saw that contrary to what they believed, the church at Laodicea was not doing very well at all. First of all, they had become lukewarm. Yes, they went to church, they believed all the right things, they were actively involved in their community, they were doing everything a church was supposed to be doing, but their heart wasn't in it. They were simply going through the motions. They didn't do these things out of a love for Christ, and as a result, Jesus said he was at the point of vomiting them out of his mouth. Secondly, they had become complacent and self-reliant. They said that they were rich and had need of nothing. But in fact, as Jesus himself says, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But rather than turn his back on them, Jesus urges them to come to him. And he counseled them to buy of him gold refined in the fire, that they might be rich, and white garments, that they might be clothed, and eye salve, that they might see. What is more, he told them that the reason why he was telling them these things was not to hurt them, not to insult them, but rather because he loved them. And therefore, they should be zealous and repent. Well, all of this brings us to the words of our text, Revelation 3, verses 20 through 22. In these verses, Jesus portrays himself as standing at the door, knocking and calling, desiring to be let in. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. And so in this verse, we have what one preacher has called the most gracious promise made to the worst of churches. Unlike the other churches of Asia, our Lord could say nothing positive about the church at Laodicea. His letter from beginning to end is full of reproof and rebuke and admonishment. But in this verse and the verses that follow, he assures this church that he has not abandoned them, he has not turned his back on them. Rather, he stands at the door and he knocks, as he does also in this message today. And he promises that to those who overcome, as he also overcame, he will grant to sit with him on his throne. Well, with this in mind and the help of the Lord, let us reflect on the words of our text under the theme, Christ at the Door. And we'll consider, first of all, the forbearance he demonstrates, secondly, the incentive he provides, and thirdly, the promise he makes. 
Our text presents us with a striking scene. Christ, the risen and ascended King of the church, knocking at a door. What is this door? Well, many have interpreted these words evangelistically. According to this view, Christ here is pictured as knocking at the door of the heart of the unconverted sinner, asking, yes, even pleading, to be let in. But that simply cannot be. First of all, this is part of a letter to the church at Laodicea. And as such, it's not addressed to unconverted sinners, but to converted sinners. It's addressed to the church even though, of course, there were undoubtedly unconverted sinners in the congregation, as there are in every congregation. Secondly, to say that the sinner must open the door of his heart to Christ, or, as is commonly stated, give his heart to Christ in order to be saved, that's an unbiblical view of conversion. For one thing, man by nature is spiritually dead. The Bible teaches us that. And as such, he is totally unable and unwilling to open the door of his heart to Jesus. For another thing, Christ is absolutely sovereign. He does not need man to open his heart to him. When Christ wants to convert a sinner, that sinner will be converted. When Christ wants to open the door of the sinner's heart, that door will be opened. So how then do we interpret this? What is this door? Well, rather than interpret the door as a reference to the sinner's heart, it's better to interpret this as a reference to the door of the church. Christ is knocking at the door of the church, specifically, in this context, the church at Laodicea. Now, that implies, of course, that the church at Laodicea had locked him out. And how had they done this? How had the church locked the Lord Jesus out of their church? Well, first of all, they did it by their lukewarmness. This church, as we have seen, had become lukewarm. That means it had become ineffective. And as we saw the last time, our Lord wishes that they were either cold or hot. But they were neither. They were lukewarm. And just as we naturally spit out lukewarm water when we drink it, so Jesus says he wants to spit out this church out of his mouth. Secondly, they locked him out by their pride, their arrogance, and their self-sufficiency. As already mentioned, they said that they were rich. They said that they had need of nothing, when in fact they were wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In effect, this church had no room for Jesus. Oh, they had plenty of room for themselves, to be sure, but they had no room for Jesus. And so they shut him out. They pushed him out. They pushed him out of his own church, and they closed the door and locked it behind him. Now, how terrible this is. No room for Jesus. After all he did for them, after all he suffered for them, they had no room for him. They effectively locked him out of the church. It reminds us, doesn't it, of what we read in the Song of Solomon in chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. There Solomon describes the bride representing the church lying on her bed, waiting for her beloved, who represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read that after waiting for a while, she fell asleep. 
Suddenly she was awakened by the sound of knocking at the door, and it was her beloved. And as he knocks, he says, Open to me! But she's too lazy to get up. And when at last she does, she discovers that he had withdrawn his presence, forcing her to go in the streets and look for him. And isn't that exactly what we see happening here? This church in Laodicea had grown spiritually sleepy and lethargic. And in so doing, she had locked the Lord Jesus out of her midst. But notice how our Lord responds to this. We might have thought that he would have abandoned this church. We might have thought that he would have said, fine, if they don't want me, I'll go someplace else. And sometimes he does exactly that. Consider the seven churches in Asia. Today, there's not a single Christian church in any of these places. And there hasn't been for many, many years. Even today, the Lord is removing his candlestick from the Western world, once known as the cradle of Christianity, and he's moving it to places like Africa and China. And what is worse, he could have called down his judgment on them. But he doesn't do any of these things. Instead, he stands at the door and he knocks. And not only does he knock, but he also calls. And we infer that from what follows. For our Lord goes on to say that if anyone hears my voice, now that implies only one thing. It implies that as Jesus is standing at the door and as he's knocking, he's also calling. Like the beloved in the Song of Solomon, he says, is anyone there? It's me, your Savior and King. Open the door. Now why does Jesus do this? Why does he not simply walk away? Well, the answer is that in spite of their rejection of him, Christ still loves the church at Laodicea. If he didn't, he would have turned his back on them a long time ago, but he doesn't. He stands, he knocks, and he calls. And in this way, he communicates to them that he still cares about them, that he wants them to repent from their sinful ways and turn back to him. One writer comments, and I quote, The knocking Christ is an image not of Jesus calling unbelievers to give their hearts to him, but of calling drifting worldly believers to sincere repentance and renewal. Now, Jesus still does the same today, does he not? Like the church at Laodicea, some of you perhaps listening to my message this morning have chased Jesus away. And maybe you even slammed the door behind him. How do you do that, you say? Well, you do that by sinning against him. Your sins may not be the same as those of the church at Laodicea. They may be other sins. You may not be lukewarm or filled with pride or self-sufficiency and complacency, although we all harbor such sins to some degree. But you have sinned, and it's your sins that have driven him away. And for that reason, our Lord would be perfectly justified in turning his back on you, just as you have turned your back on him. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, he stands, he knocks, and he calls. And he does this in several ways. He does this in the preaching of the word. Also in the message this morning, Jesus is standing, he's knocking, he's calling. He does this in the administration of the sacraments. Whenever the sacrament of baptism or the Lord's Supper is administered in the midst of the congregation, Jesus is standing, he's knocking, and he's calling. He does so 
in providence as well. When you're made to undergo a heavy trial or a sudden tragedy in your personal life, in your family life, your work life, Jesus is there. He stands, he knocks, and he calls. He says, as it were, you have forsaken me, but I have not forsaken you. And that is why I stand here today, and this is why I knock, and this is why I call, because I desire to restore you to myself. Oh, my friend, do you hear him knocking and calling today? Then you must respond. And to encourage us in this, our Lord offers a powerful incentive, brings us to our second point. Yes, as if to encourage us to open the door and let him in, Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Notice that Jesus here speaks of those who hear his voice. Well, who are these people? Well, they are his people. They are his sheep. In John 10, Jesus portrays himself as a shepherd calling his sheep. And he says that when he, as the shepherd, calls them, they hear his voice and they follow him for they know his voice. Now you notice not all of the sheep will respond. Sadly, some will continue in their sins, but others do not. They repent and they turn to the Lord. To put it in the terms of our text, they get up and they open the door. And this is precisely why these words do not and cannot apply to unbelievers, which is also why we cannot use them in an evangelistic context. Unbelievers are deaf to the Lord's voice. They cannot hear his call. And as such, they will never open the door to Jesus. Only a child of God who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God is able to do this. And as such, he and he alone has been enabled to respond to the call of the Lord and to do as he commands. But even then, he is dependent on the Lord's call. It's only because the Lord calls that those who are inside will get up and open the door. And so what we have here is a perfect conjoining of divine sovereignty on the one hand and human responsibility on the other. Our Lord, as the sovereign king, stands and knocks and calls. He takes the initiative. But we must open. And the only reason why we can open is because Jesus stands and knocks and calls. Holman Hunt, the famous artist of the 19th century, depicted Jesus at the door in his famous painting, Light of the World. A copy of this painting hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, England. Christ is portrayed as standing at the door, and vines are growing against the door, showing that it has not lately been used. And Christ is wearing his crown of thorns, and he holds a lantern in his hand, the other hand is raised to knock at the door. Now, significantly, there is no latch or handle on the outside of the door. And the artist did this deliberately to communicate the idea that the door must be opened from the inside. The point is, Christ desires his church to show effort in their relationship with him. He calls and he knocks, but he wants them to open.
And if they do, Jesus says, he will come in and he will dine with them. Now in ancient times, to sit and eat with someone was a symbol of fellowship and communion. And so what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, if anyone responds to my call to repent and believe, I will have communion with him. I will have fellowship with him. As a friend fellowships with a friend, and he will have communion and fellowship with me. Communion with God is a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. In fact, one could argue that this is the main purpose of God's plan of redemption. This is the reason why Jesus came to this earth, not only to rescue us from the flames of hell, but positively so that men and women and children might enjoy communion with God. What a glorious thing that communion is. Men first experienced that communion with God in the Garden of Eden before the fall. In the book of Genesis, we read that God came from heaven and talked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. And what they talked about, we don't know. No doubt God told Adam things about himself, who he is, and why he had created him, and the world in which he lived. And Adam probably told God about all of the wonderful things he had discovered in the garden that day, praising him for all the wonderful things that God had made. And how wonderful that must have been, God and man communing with each other like good friends. But as we read in Genesis chapter 3, this communion didn't last. One day, Adam and Eve, under the instigation of the devil, rebelled against God by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of that one action, man brought on himself the wrath and the curse of God. Man had to die. And the worst part of this curse was that the fellowship that man enjoyed with God had come to a sudden end. Now, instead of fellowship, there was enmity. And as a symbol of that enmity, God banished man from the Garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. From that point forward, man was cut off from God. But now our Lord says that this communion can be restored again. How can it be restored? Well, by opening the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In order to enjoy communion with God, we must let him in. And that stands to reason, doesn't it? It's impossible to have communion with somebody who's outside the door. When friends and family come to our house for a visit, we don't keep them outside the door. We open the door and we let them in. Well, so it is when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way we can enjoy communion with Christ is if we open the door and let him in. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means simply this. It means to trust in him, to rely on him, 
to believe on Him, to live for Him, to serve Him, and to glorify Him. In short, it means to do the exact opposite of what the church at Laodicea was doing. And so the question comes to us today, are you doing that? Sometimes believers bemoan how little communion they experience with God. They feel that God is so far away from them, and they are so far away from Him. And that's a reality. That happens in spiritual life. But what's the solution to that? The solution is here in our text. The solution is to let Him in. To let Him in to your heart and into your life. To let Him take control. To trust in Him. To rely on Him. To believe on Him. To live for Him. To serve Him and to glorify Him. Oh, my friends, when we do that, then He will come to us. And He will commune with us. And we with Him. Will you do it then? Or are you still unwilling to encourage us further in this? Our Lord adds to this incentive a wonderful promise. And that brings us to our third and final point. To those who open to our Lord, he gives a wonderful promise. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now you'll notice, first of all, to whom this promise is extended. It's not extended to everybody. It is extended to those who overcome. And who are these people? Well, they are true believers, not hypocritical believers, because they will never overcome. They will succumb, but they will not overcome. No, this promise is only for believers, because believers are the ones who overcome. Now, that implies something, doesn't it? That implies that believers have enemies. And that's certainly true. And who are these enemies? Well, the Bible says that the believer has basically three enemies. First of all, there is the devil. Secondly, there is the world. And thirdly, there is their own sinful nature. But by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, the believer overcomes them all. And it's to them that Christ promises, that Christ makes this precious promise. Now, you notice what Jesus says here. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame. So Jesus here is setting himself up as the pattern for believers to follow. Even as he overcame, so they must overcome. In fact, it's only because he overcame that they can overcome. Now, significantly, the Lord Jesus overcame the same three enemies that believers face day by day. First of all, he overcame the devil. He did that initially when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Three times the devil tried to get Jesus to fall into sin, and three times he failed. In fact, throughout his entire earthly ministry, but especially towards the end of his life, the devil was always at work assaulting our beloved Savior. But Christ overcame him every time. Secondly, he overcame the world. Throughout his entire life, our Lord was attacked by the world. As a little baby, he was attacked by Herod, who sought to kill him, forcing his parents to flee to Egypt. Later, when he began his public ministry, he was attacked by the religious leaders of the Jews and by the Jews themselves. 
He was attacked by Herod. He was attacked by Pontius Pilate. He was attacked on every side. But he overcame all of these enemies. In John 16, verse 33, only a few hours before he was led away to be crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Thirdly, Jesus says he overcame sin. He did this by dying on the cross and living a perfect life in obedience to all the commandments of God. By doing this, Christ paid the penalty for the sins of his people. By living a perfect life, Christ earned for his people the righteousness that they need in order to stand before God and live. And what is more, by ascending into heaven, he was able to send forth his Holy Spirit to take up his abode in the hearts of his people, transforming them, sanctifying them, making them more and more, molding them into his image. Jesus overcame our sinful flesh. He dealt it a death blow from which it will never recover. And now because Christ has overcome, the believer will also overcome. Why? Because we are united to him by faith. And by virtue of our union with him, Christ's victory is our victory. So when Christ overcame the devil, so did we. When Christ overcame the world, so did we. When Christ overcame sin, so did we. Yes, everything that Christ did, we did in him. Now, to be sure, the enemies that we face are still strong, and we still have to fight against them. The obstacles are still great. They're like mountains at times, and we still have a long way to go. The fight isn't over. There are many battles we still must fight, but in Christ, the victory is ours. In Christ, we shall surely overcome. And to those who do, Christ says, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. A throne is a symbol of royal power and authority. And what our Lord is saying is that believers will share his authority. They will reign with him to all eternity. They will serve as his co-regents on a recreated earth. And what a wonderful promise that is. Imagine, we who have rebelled against God, who are by nature at enmity with him, that we may sit with Christ in his throne. But remember, this promise is made only to those who overcome. There's no excuse for passivity and laziness in the Christian life. Christ calls us all to fight and to struggle. If we don't fight and we don't struggle, it's a sign that we're not truly his. It's a sign we've never been truly be born again. And it means that we will never overcome. And if we don't overcome, we will not reign with him. And this promise will not be ours. And so here's a powerful test to determine if we really are a true Christian. A true Christian is a soldier. He's constantly engaged in warfare. He doesn't fight perfectly. Many times he falters. Many times he gets injured. But at least he's fighting. A hypocrite doesn't do that. A hypocrite just coasts along. He thinks he can get to heaven simply by performing some outward religious duties and doing some good works. And while that's important, it's not enough. We must also struggle and strive against sin and the devil and our own sinful nature. Oh, my friend, does that describe you today? 
If not, and you still claim to be a Christian, you're just deceiving yourself. You're saying something about yourself that simply isn't true. Child of God is one who fights, one who strives. And so, child of God, keep on fighting, knowing that one day the battle in which you are engaged will be over and you will enter into your heavenly rest and you'll sit with Christ on his throne and you will live and reign with him forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the word of God every Sunday on this station. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. And please indicate the call letters of this station. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.